God reveals himself through acts and explanations. The Exodus is, of course, an act. It is a display of God's sovereign power to judge and to save. That act is to be reflected on by the community. And of course it will be. The deed will inspire meditation and prophetic utterance. Of course, that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. The central deed in the New Testament is, of course, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That act is then explicated by the apostles and commemorated through the reading of the Gospels and through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's how revelation works in the covenant community. There is a great act of God. There is the reflection and meditation of the community inspired by the Holy Spirit and resulting in a foundation of authorized interpretation. And then there is recitation and commemoration through story, narration, and sacrament. That is how we come to know God, Old Testament and New. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God reveals himself through acts and interpretation, through recitation, commemoration, story, and sacrament, Old Testament and New. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 10. We're working our way through a major section in the book of Exodus that runs from chapter 7, verse 8, through to chapter 11, verse 10, which has as its central theme the great power confrontation between God and Pharaoh. In chapter 9, we read about plagues 5 through 7, and here in chapter 10, we will encounter plagues 8 and 9. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen, from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Here again, we are reminded that the reason that God hardened Pharaoh's heart was so that he could display the whole range of plagues that he had engineered to demonstrate the unreality of Egyptian religion in general and the supposed divinity of Pharaoh in particular. This display 
needed to be something that people would be talking about and thinking about for generations. It was a sign and a standard that God was planting smack dab in the middle of history in the heartland of the most powerful and important country on the earth at that point in time. Now, this is very important for us to see. This this helps us to understand how God reveals himself throughout the biblical narrative. Nahum Sarna says usefully here, the idea is that through the evocative power of narration, rather than by abstract theological discourse, the true knowledge of God is understood, is established in the mind of Israel and is sustained, closed quote. See, in the Bible, God reveals himself through acts and explanations. The Exodus is, of course, an act. It is a display of God's sovereign power to judge and to save. That act is to be reflected on by the community. And of course it will be. The deed will inspire meditation and prophetic utterance. Of course, that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. The central deed in the New Testament is, of course, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That act is then explicated by the apostles and commemorated through the reading of the Gospels and through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's how revelation works in the covenant community. There is a great act of God. There is the reflection and meditation of the community inspired by the Holy Spirit and resulting in a foundation of authorized interpretation. And then there is recitation and commemoration through story, narration, and sacrament. That is how we come to know God. Old Testament and New. So Moses and Aaron are sent back in to speak to Pharaoh and to announce the coming of an eighth great plague upon the land. This plague was to involve an invasion of locusts, the likes of which had never before been seen in the history of Egypt. You will recall that the seventh plague of hail, which we read about in chapter 9, affected primarily the flax and barley crop, which were typically harvested in late February and early March. The text of chapter 9 says explicitly that it did not destroy the wheat and emmer, which generally weren't harvested until late March, early April. So this suggests that some time has passed between the seventh plague and this eighth plague, a couple of weeks perhaps, but definitely no more than a month. All of these plagues, in fact, took place over the course of a few months within a single calendar year, running from winter through early spring. They fell in hard and devastating sequence. If the people had felt themselves fortunate to still have the harvest of one crop to look forward to, then obviously this text is saying they were in for a terrible surprise. This next plague would destroy everything that had been missed by the last. We pick up the story in verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, 
Go, the man among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. This is another interesting development in terms of the inner psychology of Pharaoh. This is the first time that he has offered concessions based merely upon the announcement of a plague. This would seem to indicate that he certainly no longer has any doubts as to the nature of the superior force that he is facing. He doesn't need to be convinced of that anymore. The mere threat of further consequences moves him to action. But he is still in the negotiation phase. He is bargaining and attempting to maintain some semblance of control. The men can go and worship God, he says, but then they must return. The very idea that all the people would go without any strings attached throws him into a rage, and he immediately drives Moses and Aaron out of his presence. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. So let's just pause here and notice how the Bible describes God using natural forces here, the east wind in this case, but also also obviously so manipulating those forces as to generate a clearly supernatural event. This was no mere east wind bringing a few grasshoppers from overseas. This was God using an east wind to gather and relocate a particularly enormous, unprecedented, in fact, cloud of locusts such as had never been seen before, nor would ever be seen again, as in fact we're told in the ensuing verses. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. I'm interested in the way that God makes use of natural forces in order to do the supernatural things. So you talked in the program audio about how God used the east wind, a wind that presumably blew all the time, or at regular times at least. God didn't invent the east wind out of nothing. Rather, he used the east wind to assemble a massive cloud of locusts and deposit them on the land of Egypt just in exactly in the place at exactly the time that he had predicted. So how does that work exactly? Is it a miracle if God's just using things that already happen in nature? How can we know if something is a miracle or it's just a regular, normal, physical event? Yeah, that's a good question. Listen, lots of folks have tried to reinterpret the plagues of the Exodus as just a series of regular, natural events. I've seen movies try to do this. I've read articles and book chapters trying to do this. Some people will say that there was a red algae bloom that that caused the Nile River to turn red, which apparently can happen from time to time. Then that set off a chain reaction with the frogs abandoning the river because it was polluted by the algae. Then the frogs dying led to the gnats and the flies. Maybe that polluted the water and that caused the livestock to die. Maybe it caused the people to get boils. Then another natural event happened with the big hailstorm. And then maybe a third disaster happened when these locusts got blown off course. So maybe it was just three weird events compounded. Tons of people try to make that argument. But the Bible is clearly indicating that there is something more going on here than bad luck. This isn't just three random events. 
This is God stirring the pot of nature in clearly supernatural ways. But then why didn't God do something that was completely disconnected from nature so that there would be absolutely no confusion? Like, for instance, why didn't he send lasers from outer space or uh, (laughs) give everyone really bad dreams? Why work through nature at all? Well, it's in the nature of God to use means. God is over creation, but he also works through it. Psalm 19, 1-2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So God speaks through physical and accessible things. That is his nature. We see that in the Old Testament, and we see it also in the New Testament. You know, why did God enter into the physical world via the Incarnation? That's a fair question, too. Why didn't he just write the gospel in the clouds or announce it to the world via some sort of heavenly sound system? Why send a baby? Why come as Jesus of Nazareth? Why enter in? And I think the answer is that that's just who God is. That's how God works. He is over it all, yes, but also in it all and speaking clearly through it all to anyone with ears to hear and eyes to see. God speaks and works through means, means of his choosing, means that may be common, but means that are taken up and used to communicate precisely the message that he intends to send. So he uses what is there, and he speaks in a way that we can understand. Thanks be to God. All right. Fair enough. That makes sense. Let's jump back into the story now. Verse 14. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Again, we might reasonably assume that Pharaoh would have given up the battle at this point had not the Lord acted directly and sovereignly upon his heart, as indicated in verse 20. However, Pharaoh is already culpable at this point in the narrative for sinfully resisting God, so he can by no means claim that he has been unfairly treated. Pharaoh has already crossed the line. God is merely restraining him from crossing back until he has more fully and climactically demonstrated his power in judgment and redemption. So here in this passage, we are observing how it is that God may act sovereignly in such a way as to ensure an outcome in full alignment with his preordained plan 
without acting unjustly or in any way doing damage to our moral will as human beings. Indeed, this was the concern of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. He said that God was acting sovereignly over the heart of Pharaoh, but then he went right on to anticipate our objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Close quote, Romans 9, 19 to 24. So first of all here, Paul seems to be saying, be careful, men and women, about questioning God. It is enough for you to know that he never acts in an unjust matter. Beyond that, you should probably say very little. God has every right to act towards his creature in any way he deems fit. He has the right of ownership over them as the creator of all things. God may choose to allow some evil actors to prosper for a season so as to more fully demonstrate his just wrath against them. He may choose to make an example of them, you might say, by giving them a little more rope with which to hang themselves. God can act in any way that fits his purposes, both in terms of manifesting his power to judge and his power to save. This sovereign right is not limited merely to the Jewish people, Paul says, but extends to every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. That's what Paul is arguing in Romans 9, and that's what we're seeing illustrated in Exodus 10. Thanks be to God. We encounter the story of the ninth plague now, beginning in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Now it's hard for us as modern people to appreciate how truly terrifying and debilitating this Ninth plague of darkness must have been. We live in a world of streetlights and 
headlights and we have flashlights on our cell phones. So darkness does not greatly affect us. Certainly not in the way that it affected ancient people. Darkness was something to be feared in the ancient world. People certainly did not travel at night. If you were out and about after dark, you were assumed to be a thief. Regular people did not venture out after sunset. In addition, darkness in the ancient world had psychological and spiritual resonance to an extent that we struggle to even imagine nowadays. Douglas Stewart puts it this way, speaking of the Egyptian people. He says, they considered confinement in darkness a grave punishment from God, even a sort of purposeful force and associated it with death, closed quote. To be trapped in your home, aware of being surrounded by a purposeful force, conscious that it represented in some way the wrath of a powerful and obviously sovereign God would have been absolutely terrifying. It clearly had a profound impact on Pharaoh. Once again, he's prepared to make certain concessions, but once again, they fall short of what is being demanded. Pharaoh is still bargaining with God. He believes himself to be speaking to a categorical equal. Yahweh has powers that he cannot match or even fully understand, but Pharaoh still believes himself a God, speaking and dealing with another God, a powerful God, obviously. Once again, he is prepared to make certain concessions, but once again, they fall short of what is being demanded. Pharaoh is still bargaining with God. He he believes himself speaking to a categorical equal. Yahweh has powers that he cannot match or even fully understand, obviously, but Pharaoh thinks of himself as a God, speaking to another, a greater God. So he is prepared to concede, but not to entirely surrender. But Moses has been charged by God to accept nothing less than Pharaoh's unconditional, total, unqualified surrender. That's what it means, of course, to truly repent. There's no bargaining in repentance. There are no strings. You can't hold anything back. You don't get to have reserves. You don't get to save face. You bow. You surrender. You agree. And you beg for mercy. But Pharaoh isn't there yet. And he is not willing to move any further. He tells Moses to go and to not come back. Like a child sticking his fingers in his ears, he's done listening. But of course, Yahweh isn't done talking. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, you said something I found really interesting at the end of the program audio there. You said, Pharaoh is still bargaining with God. He believes himself to be speaking to a categorical equal. Yahweh has powers that he can't match or even fully understand, but Pharaoh still believes himself a god speaking and dealing with another god. So he's prepared to concede, but not to surrender. I never really thought of that before, but you're saying that Pharaoh thought he was dealing with Yahweh as a categorical equal. Two gods trying to negotiate it out, a fair settlement with respect to these Hebrew slaves. Is that true? Did Pharaoh really think that he was a god? Well, what the Egyptians believed about Pharaoh is actually somewhat analogous to what we as Christians believe about Jesus. It's not exactly the same, but there are significant similarities. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was a sort of incarnation, that the spirit of the gods was inside Pharaoh in a special way. 
They referred to him as the image and likeness of God, just as we refer to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. So Pharaoh definitely thought of himself as the image bearer of God and as infused with a divine spirit. And and so there was a sense in which he thought he was negotiating with God on an equal footing here. And one of the purposes of the 10 plagues was to make it clear to him and to everyone else in the world that he was not. Well, message received. And I suppose we all need to be reminded from time to time that we're not God and we're not negotiating with God on an equal footing. True story. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that in the weeks and the episodes ahead. And as always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.